Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 2nd, 2022, and my guest is author Ian Leslie. He was last here in June of 2021 discussing his book, Conflicted. I like the book so much, as well as his writing on Substack, where he has a column called The Ruffian that I recommend, that I read another book of his called Curious, which is our subject for today. Ian, welcome back to EconTalk. Thank you very much, Russ, and it's great to be back. Now, for a number of years now, EconTalk has had a tagline, Conversations for the Curious. I think of myself as a curious person. I confess, though, that until I read your book, I hadn't really thought about it in any kind of systematic way. So I want to start with a contrarian take that goes against my own perspective. You know, there's a well-known saying, curiosity killed the cat. Curiosity, is it a little bit dangerous? You could argue... Um, Ignorance is bliss. So what's the virtue of curiosity? Oh, yeah, good question. Um, I, I, I think the virtue of curiosity is it, it becomes a virtue if you care about progress and innovation um, and kind of making positive change in the world or, or creativity. If you care about those things, then, then curiosity is a virtue because curiosity is what kind of takes you beyond what you know already and, it, and, and takes you beyond what you need to know in order to get by. If you don't care about any of those things and what you care about is essentially kind of, um, order and, and, and stability and keeping things the same, then curiosity is not important. In fact, it is positively dangerous. And that's why, you know, for a large part of human history, um, that's how it was considered. It's only it's relatively recently, in the last kind of few hundred years, that we've started to think about it as a virtue. But you would argue, and I think you do in the book, that it that it had evolutionary benefits. That you know, when you're out uh, in primitive society, uh, being curious would um, would be useful. Is it? Yeah. Why? Well, uh, precisely because it it. it it provides or helps create new opportunities for you to to survive and thrive in in evolutionary terms um you know but once you've once you've established a way of surviving right and and I'm not just talking about in the evolutionary terms but in, actually in our lives you know you work out a kind of set of habits and routines for getting by whether you're an individual or an organization then the need for curiosity sort of kind of decreases um, at least that's how it seems. Um, what happens is actually you're making yourself more fragile or vulnerable to to, to threats because you you stopped really kind of thinking about what might happen I, and how to make the most of it. I have to say in my life, and I don't know whether – I wouldn't generalize past myself on this, so I'm curious on what you think. But that won't be the first time I use the word curious probably unintendedly. Yeah. Um, curiosity is it might be my favorite thing in, in life. Um when I discover something new, and it's usually an insight, not a fact. Oh, there's some facts that are entertaining, but I see some connection to something I hadn't noticed before. I find it so exhilarating, and I think part of my essence as a teacher is the desire to share those fruits of curiosity. And I, your book made me think about that. Um, so for me, it's just a sublimely pleasurable experience i don't um makes me feel alive i agree and and you know the reason or not the reason but one of the thoughts that started me thinking about this subject and and then the book was what it wasn't why are people curious it was why are some people incurious you know that seemed to me a kind of more mysterious phenomenon than than curiosity itself, and you can tell when you sit next to somebody. You know, say you're at a dinner or a lunch, you you get sat next to somebody. You can tell within a couple of minutes whether or not that person is curious. Um, they're, they're asking questions about you. They're asking questions about um, the world around them, um, and there's a kind of light behind the eyes of a, of a curious person 
that just isn't there. So an incurious person could be perfectly polite. You know, they kind of know the routines to go through the the form, um, but you can just kind of tell there isn't really much hunger to 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 learn anything they don't know already. Um, and it just seemed to me that they are objectively less interesting as a result. And, and, and I, you know, it seemed to me their lives are less rich as a result as well. So I just wondered, like, you know, how do people end up that way? What, what happens? Why do some people become more curious and some people become less curious? I, like myself, I think you're a curiosity snob, Ian. Um, <laughs> I am. Right? Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's not my strongest, it's not my probably best character trait, but I do have a certain, um, uh, preference for curious people. I think that's, I think it's true. Yeah. Um, and, and I also think, you know, from their own point of view, it'd be better. <laughs> I just think everybody's going to live a richer, happier, more interesting life if they're more curious, but somehow we could, we just kind of, we, we fall out of it as, as we grow older in many cases. So the book is really about, you know, how do you keep, how do you stay curious? Yeah. I'm not sure you're right about a better life, but yeah, you know, the, the unexamined life is not worth living, said Socrates. And I thought he was, and still think he was onto something, but many people leave wonderful lives who are not curious about either themselves or the world around them. Um, yeah. But such, such, such is life. Um, do you think curiosity can be taught, stimulated? Yes, but I, I, I'm skeptical that it actually can be taught. Um, but as someone who's just written a book about it, this is a bit an odd thing to say. But I'm not sure it can be taught sort of directly, um, as effectively as it can indirectly, i.e. by giving people things to, to get curious about. You know, by, by showing them information and, and knowledge and helping them understand things in a way that makes them think, oh, that's interesting and I want to learn more, rather than, okay, I've got what I need now. Um, I, I don't think, you know, we should say, I'm going to teach you how to be curious. Here are your, you know, here, here's how to do it without saying, okay, here are some things to be curious about. Um, see how that worked. Yeah, what I, what's interesting about the book, and this is a theme we've touched on recently in a number of episodes about education, is is what what is real learning? What is real education? And And I think you talk about, you know, sort of two extremes one is knowing a lot of things facts etc and the other is having techniques of thought and there are certain schools of of teaching and learning that emphasize the one over the other in fact the there's a certain bias today i think against teaching things facts because it's quote old-fashioned and also because we have the internet now which lets us find out things very quickly on our own without much without much trouble and at the other extreme, where they're, well, we'll just teach people how to think. And your theme through a large part of the book is that thinking without knowledge, thinking without facts is meaningless. Uh, and the two work together very powerfully. And I think that's uh, correct. So talk about that. Yeah. So um, I, I don't think you can teach critical thinking in, in the abstract. Um, being able to think critically about the Second World War or... Um, uh, how how stars produce energy, um, it, it really requires you to have a lot of factual knowledge before you can begin to think critically about it. Um, somebody put it to me like this the other day, which was, you know, you don't teach somebody who's never run a marathon before by, by saying, right, now, now you run marathons. You, you start with, with diet and with, with, you know, conditioning and you start by running a few kilometers at a time. You put all these things together and you build up gradually over time until they can do it. Um, it's a little bit similar to that. You know, in order to get to the stage where you can exercise your critical thinking about a field, you need to know quite a lot about it. Um, you, you can't just go straight to the critical thinking stage. You know, if I ask somebody who doesn't know much about the Second World War at all, can you, can you give me some critical thinking about, well, you know, why did, why did um, Hitler invade um, the Soviet Union, I don't think I'm going to get a very high-level critical you know, analysis um, unless they already have a lot of uh, um, knowledge of, of, of the field. Um, so I, I think it goes back to you know, a really kind of um, fundamental, well, what more than one probably, but kind of fundamental mistake about how people learn. Um, and, you know, we don't kind of... We don't just sort of go along thinking, okay, 
Uh, I, here, I need to find some information, then I can think critically about it. When we're thinking critically, we're actually drawing on our long-term memory, right? On, on knowledge of things that we've built up over time. Then we take some of that knowledge from our long-term memory, move it into our short-term memory, which is like basically our kind of conscious thinking. We manipulate, if you, we, and then we kind of cogitate on what we know. But if we have to spend time getting that basic knowledge into the long-term store in the first place, it's very hard for us to, to, to do both at once, if you see what I mean. Which is why the idea that we, we can just, we don't have to worry about kids learning facts and, and acquiring knowledge over time because they can just Google anything. That's why it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, and, it doesn't, and, and, it's, and it doesn't work. I hadn't thought uh, I hadn't thought about the long term yeah. memory thing until I, I read it in your book, and it it reminds me of of my struggles at the age of sixty seven learning Hebrew. Uh, I know a little bit of Hebrew. I'm living in Israel now, so I, I knew a little bit of Hebrew when I got here. And most people who are trying to teach me Hebrew want me to memorize some verb forms and et cetera, et cetera. And it's that's not how most people learn. Certainly not how anybody learns the language when they're younger, they just hear it and it, it goes in and they hear it again and again and it eventually creates these grooves of memory. And I, I never thought about the fact that so much of what we draw on for thinking is accessing things we already know that are factual and applying them to new things, right? And that if you, it's not just you have to teach facts because teaching facts is a little like teaching grammar, doesn't really, I'm not sure it goes in very well. The main way we learn grammar is through this great gift we have called the brain. And a lot of the facts that we access when we think are, it's not like I sat down one day and said, let's see, well, I need to know a bunch of stuff about World War II. Okay. I need to know that Soviet Union is to the east of, of, of Germany and, and let's see, Poland, right? All that stuff, you don't memorize it. It just gets put in, you don't consciously memorize it. It gets put in in context, you don't memorize a chart, say, about causes of wars that now you know, and when you are asked about, well, what caused or causes of invasion? So what caused uh, Nazi Germany to invade the Soviet Union? Well, let me see. I know there's three or four possibilities that I learned from my other case. That's not what thinking is. Thinking is not just figuring out what stuff should be on the list. It's it, because there is no one answer often about why a country invaded another country. It's nuanced, and it's and it'll be a little different with Germany and the Soviet Union. So you've got to think about how that applies. And, but if you don't have that matrix of complexity from the previous stuff you've read, studied, internalized, you're totally at sea. You're lost. You have no way of thinking about it. That, that's right. Um, and and the other point here is there's a compounding effect because it's more difficult to learn new information about a subject if you don't have in, information about it already stored in your long-term memory. It seems unfair, right. isn't it? But that's it, well, it, it is. is unfair. <laughs> yeah, it is. And and actually, the unfairness cuts most deeply um, in in at school uh, between uh less advantaged kids and more advantaged kids right um so let's let's say you take two children and they're in the same class and one of them comes from a, a kind of what the psychologists who study this call cognitively rich household you know a household where usually a middle class household where the parents have time and money um to to have books around the house to read with their kids to to have conversations about about knowledge um, versus a kid who hasn't had that privilege, right? Um, and comes into school with a much lower level of just general knowledge about, about all sorts of things. Those two kids sitting next to each other at school, they will put in, if they put in the same effort, then the kid who's, who started with a head start will, will just get further and further ahead because he or she is actually acquiring new information at a much faster rate because that new information is, finds it much easier to, uh, to become part of the network of, of information knowledge that's already in their head. And then, you know, what does the other kid think after a few months of that? She doesn't think, oh, well, clearly this is just, you know, they've got a cognitive advantage, they, they have a head start, and this is how learning works. She thinks, no, she thinks, I'm stupid, or yeah. this is not for me, and she gives up. Um, and that is, I think, uh, heartbreaking. Um, so, uh, and it, so that's why it's so important that schools 
you know put a huge investment in into into those disadvantaged kids at an early stage because you're trying to stop that kind of effectively a, a cognitive rich get richer effect um kicking in um because once it does it's it's you know the longer it goes on it's very the harder it is to reverse i just want to reiterate though this point about how knowledge factual knowledge is acquired because i find it, it, it just so interesting to me have you ever looked up a word in the dictionary that you didn't know and then you're and you close the dictionary, and then you come across the word six weeks later, and you have no idea what it means, right? <laughs> and oh, all, all the time, time or, or right? you know, people will explain a difficult concept to me, and I'll grasp it, <laughs> and I, I, I've got it, and then it'll happen three or four times, you know, and I'll forget it every time. But um, but the point about the dictionary, which I'd never thought about, is that that's not the way we learn how to what a word means. We don't learn about what a word means by looking up in the dictionary. We learn about it from hearing it a number of times in context, in conversation, in reading, and this whole idea that you can just sort of look up stuff on Wikipedia when you need it or Google it is valuable for certain things. It answers, you know, solves uh, debates and arguments you're having uh, or solves something that's puzzling you or bugging you that you can't remember. But it doesn't go into the brain. It's a little bit to me like you have a vitamin D deficiency, so you take vitamin D. And it's not obvious to me, and I suspect there's science behind this, that taking vitamin D is not the same as sitting out in the sun. I mention this partly because, you know, I hear about this all the time. Oh, you know, get out of the sun, get out of the sun. I said, yeah, but vitamin D is good for you. Oh, you can take a supplement. Well, it doesn't actually, I don't think, go into your bones the same way it does when you sit out in the sun. I get the idea of it, but that's kind of like the equivalent of looking up words in the dictionary. And, And if you haven't had, especially in your childhood, when your brain is really good at it, uh, if you haven't embedded that stuff in there, you're at a disadvantage for sure. Absolutely. I think that's a, a great uh, analogy. Um, yeah, it just doesn't um, absorb in the same way. Um, and, and it's why in, in education and teaching, the, the evidence suggests that, that repetition is really important. Yeah. Um, you know, particular kinds of repetition. You do it in different ways, but but just the idea you have to repeat something quite a lot, quite a few times before people start to acquire it. Um, but yeah, as I say, that the higher the level of base level knowledge that that the person is is beginning with, um, the easier it is for them to absorb um, new knowledge. However, they do it. Yeah, my mom used to. My mom tells me that when I was two years old, she would talk to me all day. Uh, she was home with me. My dad was, at, I think, in school at the time. And she said, you know, I treated you like an adult. I shared my thoughts with you. I, and, you know, she probably, it wasn't a strategic decision on her part. Um, but I suspect that helped me understand things about all kinds of things that I have no awareness of and just are built in now. No doubt. I, I, the, the, I think there's a study in the book that I cite where um, they looked at children in different households um and and you know sort of check study their levels of curiosity as as they grew up and and i'm really kind of simplifying it here but the most interesting finding was that um the children who turned out to be really curious lived in households where the parents were talking to them and the parents weren't just answering their questions um the 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 crucial difference seemed to be that the parents would ask questions back (laughs) Yeah, well, that makes sense. Right, so they say, "Oh well, you know, I think I think it's made this, but I'm not sure. I mean, so what do you think?" And they would actually have a conversation about it. Yeah, no, I love that. It could be true. I, I most don't believe most studies, but that's okay. Yeah, well, so, I, I I agree. Just, it's, but it's it does feel intuitively right. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, let's. Um, I want to let listeners know that uh, AJ Jacobs will be coming on to Econ Talk. At least he's scheduled to to talk about his new book, which is called The Puzzler which is about his obsession with puzzles. And your book um, makes the point, which I think about a lot, uh, which is that there's a difference between a puzzle and a mystery. Um, Talk about that difference. Yeah, so um, a a puzzle is something where you, once you get the answer, you're no longer interested in it. So when you solve your wordle you know you no longer you don't have to go back and think about it again um a mystery is something where where you're you're really interested in the answer but you know you'll never really find it and and therefore your curiosity about it is kind of um is is never exhausted 
Um, and most fields of knowledge are are best seen as mysteries. You know, what's what's the uh, you know physics or how did the universe begin? Um, it's unlikely we're going to solve. That's that's a mystery, right? Maybe at some point it'll become a puzzle and we'll solve it, but that seems to be a long way off. Um, so mysteries are much more, much more conducive to kind of long-term curiosity. And I think when we're, when we're trying to invoke curiosity, trying to get people curious, we really should be kind of trying to frame it as as a mystery. Because a puzzle, you know, it'll stimulate your curiosity and then the moment you get a piece of information uh, that solves the puzzle, you, it's just the curiosity goes, right? It's killed. It's like a bee stinging you and then killing itself, right? Um, and, and so, you, actually, you can think about this in, in storytelling terms. Um, what a, a storyteller like Agatha Christie, say, is a brilliant um, maker of puzzles. Um, and she, she, she will kind of give you a little bit of information and then let, let you know that you don't have all the information. So you know that Somebody got killed in the study with some lead piping, but you don't know who who done it. Um, once you find out who done it, you, you, I don't think many people reread Agatha Christie novels, right? You know they're brilliant for what they are, but that's the, how they work. Whereas if you read The Great Gatsby and and you're trying to work out what what motivates Gatsby, what's what was really going on there, or I'm trying to understand Nick. You know, these are mysteries that you, you probably won't ever solve, and that's why you go back and reread the book, and that's why people discuss the book over, you know, endlessly. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think it's a useful distinction in all sorts of ways. But it doesn't have to be the case. You would think, and I think this is true for maybe a lot of people, that mysteries are discouraging. You know, there's a sweet spot in puzzle solving, right? So, yeah, if you do the New York Times crossword puzzle, Monday's the easiest and Saturday's the hardest. Uh, and Sunday's sort of a special case, certain other requirements about Sunday. But they're, they're supposed to get harder with each day of the week. And there's certain people who, like I can't, I hope it's not bragging, but I don't enjoy doing a Monday New York Times crossword puzzle. It's not satisfying because uh, it's too easy. So what you want when you have a puzzle is it needs to be challenging but not too challenging. So what if I get a really hard puzzle, um, certain types of cryptic, cryptic crosswords, which I haven't spent enough time with, I don't like to do them because I don't make any progress. So you'd think mysteries, in a certain sense, would be like those badly designed puzzles. They're too hard or too easy, in this case, too hard, where you're never going to get the answer. So I think a lot of people, instead of saying, well, I'm going to delve deeply into this, instead they say, well, I give up. If I'm not, I mean, if I can't figure it out, what's the point? Whereas other people, I think, enjoy savoring the complexity of it, the nuance. In fact, you could argue that a lot of modern novels that end on a note of uncertainty, like what's what you, people go, well, what's going to happen next? And the answer is, well, I'm yeah, not right. going to tell you. That's, that's like yeah. life. And, and I think modern fiction is much more open-ended that way, much less pat, much less like Agatha Christie. And, and um, it's not for everybody's cup of tea as a result. And it's interesting to me that, you know, mysteries – you're suggesting because they're bottomless, there's always uh, more to discover. But for some people, that's just a source of endless frustration. I'm not. Why would I, why would I learn about that? Tell me about something I can figure out. <laughs> yeah, that that that's true. Um, but um, I, I think it's. I think it ultimately is a deeper satisfaction, and, and you know, not just in terms of, of of fiction or art, but I think that's how scientists think about their fields of. Uh, investigation. They think about them as mysteries, not puzzles. They're, they're not kind of thinking, okay, if, if I write one more paper, I can just, I can kill this whole field of inquiry. Maybe some of them are actually some of the time, but but generally speaking, they, they feel like they're part of a kind of great river of, of inquiry that's going to kind of go on a long time um, and won't be solved with one more bit of information. Um, they're in, you know, they're, and that's why they love it. They're, they're enthralled to to the mystery. I want to talk about that word inquiry. Um, I teach at this college. I'm, I don't teach so much at it. I'm I, I'm president of this college, Shalem College. We're a liberal arts education, and a place that has liberal arts education. And one of the things we talk a lot about here is the power of a seminar, a conversation among students about a great book, say Homer's Odyssey, the Odyssey, and. When I tell people that, sometimes their reaction is, 
And, and by the way, in that class, the teacher's role can be manifold, but one of them could be teacher, meaning here's what this book means, and let me explain it to you. And the other could be guide. Here's some questions to think about that don't have answers that you need to think about to try to understand this book. And a lot of people's reaction to that is, well, why would I want to listen to my fellow students when I could listen, who've read this book for the first time, when I could listen to a master of Homer who's read it 20 times and who understands it deeply? And, and I think what those people are missing is the power of inquiry. The idea that I, as the reader, need to explore the book to fully begin to try to understand it. There's not a set of facts to learn about Homer. There are some facts. You know, you can find out who Odysseus was and why he's on his odyssey. Why is he on this trip? Who is Penelope? What's the role of Telemachus' son, et cetera, et cetera. There are facts related to it. But most of the things that are profound and deep about the book are not factual. There are things like, what is home? What is fellowship? What is courage? Um, what is love? Those are not those aren't puzzles. <laughs> those are mysteries. They don't have simple answers. And the the life-changing, transformative, educational aspect of that is to inquire, not to learn, not to get a, a, an answer. It's to puzzle over, not to answer the puzzle. And I think that it's all about inquiry. And and if you don't understand, if you've never been, if you've never inquired into a, a mystery. It's hard to appreciate how powerful it is to just explore it, not to answer it. I think that's absolutely right and, 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 and beautifully put. Um, the, so I think it was uh, Chekhov who said the role of the artist is to ask questions, not answer them. Um, and and I, I think it was Chekhov, but it might have been someone else who said something to the effect of bad art is art that can be easily explained. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I can explain what's going on in this in this work of art, this novel or this painting, it's probably not very good. If I'm basically quite stumped by it, even if I know it incredibly well, <laughs> then that that means it's it's a it's a great work of art. Um, and I think we can, you know, you can relate that that thought to all sorts of different places, you know, because um, there's a really great uh, thought from Kevin Kelly. Who said that? Uh, you know the, the the problem with the well, not the problem with the one. The way the way the modern world has developed with greater machine intelligence means that there's now a great excess of answers. Um, the answers are everywhere. I think he says answers are cheap. You know, just to, in simple supply and demand terms, we can get answers in all sorts of ways instantly all the time. Um, but there hasn't been a commensurate increase in the number of good questions. So good questions are becoming more valuable. And it's the, and it's the really great question answer uh, askers, the great inquirers, who will be the great innovators um, and the, the great kind of revolutionaries of, of, of the future um, because we're kind of outsourcing our capacity for answers to machines. Well, you quote David Foster Wallace, and it's funny, I like to quote his speech all the time, his commencement speech uh, that he gave at Kenyon College. And I like to quote the passage where he says, everybody worships, because I think that's mm. profound. But I forgot about the rest of the speech, which is also profound, where he talks about the power of what we're talking about, a liberal arts education, meaning the exploration of, of mysteries in literature and history and art that don't have uh, cl- clear answers. And what he says is, and this is so interesting, he says, a great education doesn't teach you just how to think, which is sort of a cliche that might have some truth to it. But there's something even more important, which is it teaches you what to think about. It gives you the tools to think for you to decide what to think about. It gives you the whole, this incredible landscape that it's up to you how you perceive the world. It's up to you how you perceive your fellow human beings. And um, that's very deep and very true and, um, and really important. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it, it helps you think about what, what to think about and, and also kind of helps you understand where the most in, important uh, and interesting questions are. Um, but yeah, just, just how to think about them rather than what to think. But to go back to our earlier, earlier part of the conversation, um, I don't think you can really understand that about any given field unless you know something about the field. 
Um, but really, when w- the job of an educator, whether that's, I think, a, a teacher or, a, you know, a podcaster or anybody who's kind of interested in, in, in enlightening people or informing people, um, is to help them inquire, is to help them ask better questions. Um, it's not to it's not to give them answers, and it's it's the same as as the role of the artist. You have an interesting insight in in the book about city life and how the move from let's say the village to the city. One of the things that's educational about that is strangers, which is a word I never thought about. Uh, strangers are people you don't know, but it, but if you think about the root. <laughs> It's people who are strange to you. They're not just like you, and they provoke curiosity. And uh, I loved what you wrote about that. Talk about why cities are educational experiences, why they stimulate curiosity. Yeah, and they, I mean, they really, they rise at the same time as uh, the rise of um, enlightenment and inquiry and the idea that curiosity is a virtue, right? And obviously, all these things are, are all connected. Um, and there's a couple of reasons, at least. What one of them is what uh, Jane Jacobs talked about. She said the rise of the city provides what could otherwise only be given by travelling, namely the strange. So you know, if before before if you don't live in a city or before cities, if you want to discover new and strange and exotic people and behaviours and cultures, you have to go travelling. In a city, the world comes to you and presents itself for investigation. Um, and that was, that was something that people at the time that, that the modern cities were, were growing were recognizing and were really excited by. So there's something that Samuel Johnson said. He said, it's not in the showy buildings, but the multiplicity of human habita- habitations uh, crowded together that the wonderful immensity of London con- consists, right? It's it's not this kind of physical conglomeration. It's it's the people. It's the all the different strange people clustered together in 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 one place. That's what makes this place so wondrous. It means you you never get bored of it. Um, and then I think the second reason that city, c- cities are such an incredible stimulant to curiosity is to do with what we were talking about earlier, which is, okay, you get curious about something, but then how are you going to, are you going to kind of build knowledge over time? And one of the ways to do that is to inquire in communities of people. And of course, what a city does is it, it makes it much easier for, for you to connect with and come together with communities of people who are interested in the same things that you are, right? So a big part of the Enlightenment in, in Britain um, was bottom up right it was it was groups of people um forming societies informal or formal uh meeting in coffee houses and 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 clubs in london and and birmingham um and trying to understand things and and sharing ideas and 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 sharing thoughts um so yeah for both those reasons the, the way it introduces you to difference and and strangeness on a daily basis and also the way it can connect you with like-minded people who are interested in inquiry into the same fields that you are. Um, I, I think they're an incredible engine of curiosity. And, and you tied it in in the book to to the birth of, of the novel, um, that it the novel, modern fiction, is the stimulation of imagination. You, you called it what it feels like to be another person. Now, you can muse on that. Um, all day long based on conversations you have with other people. But the whole idea of a great novel is to give you a really wise person's insight into what makes somebody tick who's not like you probably, whether it's Anna Karenina or, um, or one of the brothers Karamazov. And I thought – I've never really thought about that. I thought that was really a wonderful, wonderful idea that the whole birth of consciousness, you know, which I guess you could say comes from Freud in, in our modern – language really came before Freud in the form of, of fiction. And amateur psychologist, which is what a, a great novelist is, is a, is a good psychologist, is helping us access something we by definition can't access, another person's consciousness. Absolutely. So obviously we've had stories for a long time, yeah. uh, forever. Um, 
but but what the, the particular form of story that a novel is um, is taking us into the minds of other people, probing the consciousness of of, of others different from us. And and it's again, it's not a coincidence that it, it arose at, at the same time that industrialized cities were forming in the 18th century, and people were seeing all these different people around, being near all these different people. And having to think about, you know, how do I get along or what do I think about these people? Do I like them? Just what's going on here? What's it like to be? And the novel kind of answers that question. Right? What's it like to, to actually be a different class or a different religion or a different sex, different, um, different race? And they are, it's been a great creator of empathy, emotional and intellectual empathy. And somebody like Charles Dickens, of course, you know, was very conscious of that and, and put it towards political ends. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's, there's a philosopher called Richard, American philosopher, Richard Rorty, who says it's absolutely central to the rise of democracy. The rise of the novel is central to, to democracy. It's much better tool than reason for, bring, for bringing people together. Hmm. You know, you can ask people to read Kant and understand the theory of human universalism, or you can get them to read David Copperfield. Um, and they go, yeah, okay, I get it. Um, <laughs> And the great example from from the US is is Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Not the best novel, um, perhaps, um, but a, a very influential one socially um, that changed attitudes to slavery. Yeah, and I think it was Lincoln who said to to, to Harriet Beecher Stowe, "So this is the little lady who started this great war." Yeah, which I always thought was a bit of a backhanded compliment. Yeah, actually, it's true. Not 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 necessarily the kindest way to. <laughs> to characterize somebody. I like what you wrote about The Wire, which is one of my favorite works of art. The miniseries, not such a mini, I guess, a multi, multi-season series about the, it starts out the first season, it's really about the city of Baltimore, but the first season is about the, maybe the first two, and they continues to work through the, through it, the, the drug war and the relation between the police and the drug dealers. And what, what talking about fiction makes me realize is that you know in the drug war in a city like Baltimore, the police see the drug dealers in a certain way, and the drug dealers see the police in a certain way. And I thought the power of that show was to show how similar they are, actually. And that in the absence of uh, an empathetic imagination, you, you tend to create cardboard imagery of, of your adversary or your enemy, or sometimes your friend, I guess. Uh, but but you write, one way of describing the achievement of the TV series The Wire was that it took a genre, the police procedural, was conventionally based on puzzles in the form of crimes that are solved each week, and turned it into a mystery, the mystery of Baltimore's crime problem. And you write, and in doing so, it demonstrated that while police and politicians like to present urban crime as a puzzle with a definite answer, arrest all the users, longer prison sentences, it's more akin to a mystery, multi-layered, shifting, and nuanced. And what I'm suggesting adding to that is that, and that the people who are in this game, in this drama, they're also multi-layered, shifting, and nuanced, and they're more like each other than either can imagine. And we as the viewers on the outside get to look at them and realize, oh my gosh, they both respond to kind of the same incentives. They both get misled by, by the wrong kind of carrots and sticks, those incentives, and um, and it's much more complicated than either one thinks it is, or that we might think looking at it from the outside in a cardboard way. And as a great work of art, part of what it's able to achieve is to get you to see a richer picture of the players. Doesn't mean you're going to be a better policymaker, by the way, but you, you're, <laughs> you're you're a better human being, I think, for it. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, and it, and and it it's why it's you know in Chekhovian terms, right? It's why it's a great work of art. It's asking more questions than than it answers. It's, it's and, not saying, "Hey, look, this is this is what's going on here, and this is why it's happening." It's saying, "Wow." You know, oh, what 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 are people like, and and why are they like this, and and why do they do these things against their own interests, and and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and somebody who you think is a good guy actually has some bad things, and somebody who thinks a bad guy actually has some good things, and again, that ruins your uh, can ruin your morning, but it probably makes you a more uh, a better uh, appreciator of the human experience. Um, it does. It actually, it touches on something which I think is interesting, which is there's a real opposition between curiosity and judgment. You can kind of be in one mode or, or the other, but they don't really kind of go together. So you can be curious about why a person is like, is the way they are, or you can judge them and say, well, they're bad or they're stupid, um, whatever it is. But 
you can't kind of do both at once. Um, and, you know, my, as you know, my last book was about conflict and disagreement. And that's where it kind of connects, I think, to cu- curiosity is that when you're trying to get yourself out of that more judgmental mindset, when you're thinking about people you disagree with, it, it works to kind of put yourself in a curiosity mindset and say, well, I might never agree with them. I'm, I know I'm never going to agree with them, but I can be interested in, in why they think that. And actually that is, that can kind of build more, more, more empathy. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, why was, um, what was Rousseau, what did Rousseau think about education and um, why do you think he was wrong? <laughs> well, in very kind of broad brush terms, Rousseau was the philosopher who introduced uh, a, a, this idea, which is a very powerful idea and, and is still behind um, uh, the, the way that a lot of people talk about education today. This idea that a boy can learn everything. He talked about a boy, it could have been a girl. He wrote a book called Emile about a boy who can learn everything he needs without interference from adults that he can be taught by experience alone. Um, and that, you know, we're kind of wasting our time sending children to school and filling them up with information and facts. And really, we should just send them out into the garden and let them learn about nature and they'll soon work out everything for themselves. The idea has been really revived recently with the rise of Google and the internet and Wikipedia. You too. Why, are we, why are we doing this? You know, why are we instructing people? Why do we, we just send them out into the garden of, of the internet and let them work it out for themselves? Um, well, you can probably already see a few problems with that. <laughs> um, it doesn't work. I mean, the, 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 what he fundamentally missed, I think, is that we are cultural creatures um, it's probably what makes us distinctive, right? We, 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 we could live in any biological, you know, any uh, physical niche in the world, unlike most animals, right? Kind of stay where they, where they can survive. We can live anywhere on the planet, just about. Um, and in all sorts of conditions. And the reason for that is that we're very good at acquiring and sharing and passing on knowledge. Um, and, the the holders of this knowledge are adults, you know, when you're a kid. And that's why we have this biological drive, really, to ask questions when we're young. Like, you know, so we're asking many, many, many questions um, when, when we're particularly between the ages of, of three and five. Um, somebody worked out that, that kids ask about 40,000 questions a year. Why and how questions, explanatory questions. So we have this enormously powerful engine of, of, of curiosity and we work out, we instinctively seem to know, in fact, that adults are the, are the holders of, they, they have the kind of, have the key to this invisible world of knowledge. And actually, before we work that out, even more amazing thing is that we know that the stuff we don't know. I mean, that, that's extraordinary when you think about it. You know, we, we just have this instinct that there's a whole world of knowledge out there that, and, and we don't know it and we want to know it. Um, and, and yeah, and, and we, we also work out that, that adults are, are good gatekeepers of that knowledge. We, also, we seem to have pretty well-refined instincts for working out which adults are reliable and which aren't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that indicates that there is a kind of, that this is how we're, how we're evolved. Um, we're evolved to, to acquire um, culture in order to, to, to survive and, and thrive. So, yeah, um, the, the, the passing on of knowledge and, and, and instruction, I think, is absolutely kind of key to who we are. That's why, along with some of the other reasons that we've touched on, I don't think we should loosely say, ah, well, you don't need to teach children um, facts and information. They'll just find this stuff out for themselves. Well, that raises a bunch of interesting questions about parenting. Um, I, I think if you're not careful as a parent, you do you stuff your kids' heads with facts. That's at one extreme. The other extreme is you teach them what the right opinions are, whether it's about politics or religion or whatever else. And that's also not the ideal. And and I think the forty thousand questions that we ask a year when we're little, you know, if a, if a parent says do this. A child will often say why. Um, 
But that's a very, that's not an inquiry question. <laughs> that is a different kind oh, of question. Yeah. No, I agree. And I yeah. think a lot of what great parenting is, just like I think great teaching is, going back to the model of the classroom or seminar of inquiry, is to teach people how to ask those questions, right? Because as you point out, it's a really crazy thing, which I didn't appreciate. I didn't think enough about, which is, uh, why would you ask a question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, why would you ask, why is the sky blue? There's a thousand yeah. questions uh, like that. And, of course, there are really annoying children sometimes who just ask questions randomly, partly, I think, because they learn that it annoys adults. They're not oh, actually absolutely. looking for They're not looking for answers. They're looking to, to get a little self-control. They're trying to get something back from the people who are bossing them around, which I also understand. But, but I think the... Uh, it's a cliche that we both have, I think, said in this conversation that you know, it's important to learn how to ask the right questions. Like, if you have to really think about what that means, right? And to teach people the art of a good question is, um, or a child, you know, as, as a parent, to teach them that is um, is really an amazing thing. It's it's really gets at a lot of what makes us human. Yeah, yeah, and. And I, I and I think a, a lot of it is uh, well. It's sort of two things at once. One is your questions will be better once you know something about the field, um, the the domain, right? But then there's this second kind of countervailing principle, which is that your questions will be better if you don't let the domain kind of dominate your thinking too much. If if you don't let the kind of existing conventional wisdom kind of shape your thinking too much. So you should be asking questions. Ideally, you should be asking questions that are informed, but are also somewhat um, a little bit rebellious. You know, don't accept that. And, and you know, don't be afraid to ask what seems to be the stupid question. I love this thing that Nabokov said, I think it's at the front of my book, about curiosity is the purest form of insubordination. Um, uh, it should be a, a questioning of adult wisdom, even as you're drawing on it, right? Or a questioning of conventional wisdom, even as you're drawing on it. Um, so, so there is a kind of sweet spot there. Well, there's no doubt that some of the great discoveries of the world come from people who aren't specialists because they have that advantage. Mm -hmm. And we, Ed Lemer, one of my favorite econ talk guests, um, his essay on business cycles, he, he says at the beginning of it, he says, I have a great disadvantage writing about business cycles. He goes, I don't know any macroeconomics, but I have a great advantage also, which is I don't know any macroeconomics. So Absolutely. he's able to start afresh, which can, you know, the kid in the garden wandering among the snails and the, and the peonies is, um, doesn't learn very much. They have to have that some base. And of course, Ed Lehmer is being a little bit silly when he said he doesn't know any macroeconomics. Of course, he knows some, but he wasn't, no. he's not versed in it the way that you were implying earlier. Another one of my favorite econ talk guests, Kevin Kelly, favorite thinkers. Um, Kevin Kelly had the great disadvantage of, I think he never went to college. He also has the great advantage that he never went to college. His brain is unfettered in certain ways that other people's are constrained because he wasn't shoved into certain boxes and certain channels and certain highways of thinking. And that is both, a, for the right kind of person, a, tr a disadvantage, but also a tremendous advantage because it allows you to think freshly about things, which is um, – so that kid in the garden who has got nothing to start with is not going to learn anything hardly at, at all. They'll learn that you know, a snake could bite you perhaps or a, uh, you know, a worm is mushy and <laughs> they'll learn some things. But to understand – what a garden is and how it functions and how the natural world works requires a guide, a teacher who ne doesn't necessarily give you a set of facts about the garden, but they'll tell you a bunch of facts that, that, that will be built on to get that deeper understanding. And, yeah. and then, then you do the exploration. You, do let, you want to let the, the person lose after they've reached that certain level, and that's, we hope, for the rest of their life, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, they, they'll give you a, a a framework which you you can then build on and improve, and maybe at some point dispense with Reject. and create a new yeah. one. But you know, you have to kind of start with something because um, you're actually you're thinking with the knowledge that you have. You know, isn't thinking isn't this kind of thing which exists separately from knowledge or information that you use the bits of knowledge that you have in order to construct 
uh, uh, your thinking in order to construct your, your, your frameworks. I want to go back to fiction for a minute um, and tie it into economics because I like this a lot. You talked about the power of, quote, what's going to happen next. And, of course, this is the essence of great storytelling is to have the – to write a page turner, right, that you want to – you keep reading because you want to know what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And, and, of course, to get to that point, you have to have done some really powerful work. You have to have created characters that your reader cares about um, or a plot or plot twist that, that they're anxious to find out how it's resolved. Uh, but at one point you write, uh, our, our stories from the Odyssey to the Searchers to Harry Potter revolve around these two conflicting instincts, to strike out or stay home. Striking out meaning to, to go out into the world or to stay home. What do you mean by that, and how does that tie in with curiosity? Well, um there just is this kind of deep human impulse to explore and at the same time this deep human impulse to to return home right i mean that's why homer is uh, the odyssey is such a, a formative story for for our culture um and but you can see that that the that the tension between those two things in just so many different areas of our life, you can actually hear it in music. You know, music will, piece of music will start in the tonic key. It'll move to a, a relative key. It'll move to a dominant chord, and it'll come back to the tonic. So we're always kind of like saying we need to kind of go away from where we are in order to get interested and excited and energized. Um, but then we're satisfied when we return to where we come from. Um, but when we return to where we come from, we're always changed by the knowledge that we gained um, on our travels. Um, and yeah, you see that in our stories, you see that in our music, and you see it in uh, just human existence and human behavior. Um, I think there's a, a, another study or series of studies that I quote, again, you know, with, with, with caveats, but it, again, it's sort of intuitively interesting, where they, they take babies, uh, they, they, they kind of get mums with, with babies in, in, into the lab. Um, they introduce the babies to, to some toys. These are kind of one-year-olds. Um, and then the, the researcher stays in the room and the mum leaves the room, says, I'll, I'll be back in a few minutes, darling, soon. Um, and they're interested in what happens, not just, you know, does the baby continue exploring the room, but what happens when the mum comes back? And what they found was that when the mum comes back, the babies who had kind of less secure emotional attachments, I don't actually know how they established it, but I think they established that prior to, to recruiting them. The babies who were a little bit more insecure in their emotional attachments saw the mum and they come back and they're delighted and they're really, really happy and then they just stay with mum. The babies who had really secure emotional attachments, who were very kind of emotionally stable, were delighted to see their mum um, and they would give them a cuddle and then they would crawl off again. Um, and they would go exploring again. And I, I, I just thought that's actually, you know, it's a tiny kind of like, you know, it's just a little study. It's a tiny little thing. But I thought that was rather, rather nice. It just suggests that, that uh, what I say in the book, curiosity is underwritten by love. That actually when you feel that you kind of love your, your home, um, in however you constitute that, then actually that, that can give you permission to go off and explore the world um, um, and then come back and, and, and you know, feel, feel at home again, but also feel different, differently. No, that's really nice. The tie, the tie-in for economics to me, which is not quite this point about love, which I, but I love that point, um, is that I think for many of us who fell in love with economics, uh, we fell in love with it because it's, it's a way of figuring out what happens next. Right, I like to quote the um, George Stigler, Thomas Sowell. I'm not, I keep forgetting who who said it first. Uh, whether it was Sowell or whether Sowell got it from Stigler, but the, the the one of them said, "Good economics is is remembering to ask, and then what?" So yeah, this is the first order effect of say a subsidy or a tax or price control. But and then what? What what does that set into motion? And I think that's oh, a, I that's a profound. It, it takes economics, you know, economics is fundamentally, some people see it as a mathematical science. I don't, 
for me, intuitive economics is, is about narrative. It's about storytelling. And I don't mean that in an insulting way, like making stuff up. I mean it in the way that it helps you organize your thinking in a, in a causal way about things around you. And once you see that, once you're exposed to that kind of thinking, it's a very powerful tool for both examining puzzles and mysteries, right? It helps you understand, I'll take one of my favorites, you know, why, why women's dry cleaning is more expensive than men's. For some people, that's a puzzle. And the answer is it's because people who own dry cleaning places discriminate against women. But for me, it's more of a mystery um, because if, if that were true, if it's merely discrimination, then a woman who's not discriminating against her own kind could open up a dry cleaning store with lower prices and drive all the new ones out of business, in, at least in theory, or at least give it a shot. So there's a mystery there. And so then the question is, well, what, what else could be going on there? And economics is a way of not necessarily finding the truth. Sometimes we hope it is, but more to, to think about things around you as mysteries and giving you a tool for imagining what it is that could come next. What, what is the causal link to this thing that you're trying to understand, this puzzle that looks like a puzzle but might be a mystery? And um, I never thought about that before. I think that's a – I think for some economists, and some of them probably are listening now, I, that could be why you fell in love with the field. It's partly, partly certainly part of the reason I fell in love with it. Well, that, that's super interesting. And, um, and I now I'm wondering why – that distinguishes economics from other fields of scientific inquiry, right? So in what sense is economics different from biology? Isn't biology about what, what happens next? Um, now, my, let me give my hypothesis here is that it, it, I think it, the reason it's powerful from, from your perspective as an economist is, is, is because you're talking about social, you know, you're talking about human beings where we tend to kind of jump to puzzles, to, to answers very quickly. We try and make things into puzzles and, and say, well, this is the answer. There's a kind of political and social pressure to do so on lots of these tricky issues. Um, where So, so e economics is really kind of in part about pushing back against that and saying, well, hang on, maybe it's yeah, I'm not. Sure. not I'm, I'm not sure, actually. I think good economics is, but I think there's also a temptation just to turn it into a puzzle and so say, I know how to fix that. So here's the yeah, lever yeah. I need to use. And I think economics is a complicated mix of both of those impulses. I know how to fix this versus, you know, this is more complicated than I probably think. And I should be maybe a little bit agnostic about what the answer or solution is. And I think, you know, as, as you get older, you get different you push yourself in one direction or another. When you're young, you tend to think, oh, I know all the answers and we need to just do this, this, and this and everything will be great. And I think as you get older, you, you get a little more skeptical. But, but to come back to your point, it, it is a lot like biology. You know, if you think about um, asking a question, what happens if you put a price control on gasoline, say, that's somewhat akin to the question, um, what happens if I get rid of wolves in Yellowstone Park? So, in Yellowstone Park, there used to be a lot of wolves, and people didn't like them for a whole bunch of reasons, so they got rid of them. And one of the things that happened was, and, and what, what happens next? Well, the deer population isn't as, isn't as endangered and vulnerable as it was when there were a lot of wolves around, so the number of deer in the park start to grow. And then the riparian riverside, streamside, creekside, uh, willows and aspen and other things that deer like to eat, elk mainly, uh, they suddenly become less available because there's all of a sudden more deer. And because there's all aspen and willow, there are fewer beaver in the park. And so there's a connection between how many wolves are in the park and how many beaver. And you think, well, that, that's, that's easy. Wolves <laughs> must eat beaver. And so the fewer wolves, the more beaver. No, actually, there's more beavers. So now, how could that be? And I just told you the chain of logic. And, and actually, when yeah. Yellowstone reintroduced wolves in the last few decades, which has been, uh, I think, a very, I'm very happy about it. Um, the deer, the elk population got a little smaller and the aspen and willows got a little taller. And all of a sudden the beaver came back to Yellowstone Park and there were beaver dams. And that wow. sort of causal chain as an economy, that's no different than any, it's like I could do the same chain for, you put on price controls, all of a sudden there's less people willing to sell the thing because you can't make as much money. And all of a sudden the amount of time you have to wait goes up. And that means that people have, it, you know, there's a whole yeah. causal set of interesting things that you can forecast and anticipate. And it doesn't mean that you, you can move things around easily. It's not like these are well-designed knobs and, and levers, but um, it, it, it lets you see a plot 
a narrative there that that maybe was invisible before. And it could be a true narrative, actually, which would be nice. And I would suggest, by the way, this is really a ridiculous stretch of speculation, but some of the appeal of behavioral economics, I think, in modern times is it introduces a more quantum element into human behavior, a less predictable part. At first, then it became back into the old, oh, it's a puzzle. I'll just nudge them. I know how to do this. Yeah. I know how to get them to save more. They don't save enough because they're flawed. They're irrational, but I can make them on the outside. <laughs> so we do yeah, have yeah. these two impulses of puzzles and mysteries that I think are always at work in there. And I, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, that one of the ways of defining the difference between a really curious person and, and somebody who's incurious is that the curious person just gets excited when, when they think this puzzle, I thought this was a puzzle, it's actually a mystery. You know, I thought this was something that was where, where we know the answer or, or if we get this bit of information, we'll, we'll solve it. But actually, this is much more complex than I thought. Um, becoming aware of our ignorance or your own ignorance and actually liking that is probably what it means to be a, a truly curious person being threatened by ignorance and thinking oh my goodness i need to shut this question down right away and just say this is the answer that that is in curiosity when i was younger i did a lot of empirical work in economics and you'd run a regression statistical technique expecting a certain answer and you and get a different answer and your first impulse is to say well i don't want to think about that that just that's a bad result forget it I'm going to start over, pick a different question. But, but there is a point where if you're grown up, you realize, oh, my gosh, I discovered something, something I didn't know. And sometimes you made a mistake in the code. That's, <laughs> yeah, that, that's the problem. But often it's like, oh, this is more complicated, complicated than I thought. Yeah, I, and isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it's glorious. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this out with a quote that I loved here that um, it's in a footnote. You say the following. Uh, people like people making progressive style arguments are fond of quoting W.B. Yeats. Quote, education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. And then you continue. Apart from being a good example of why the Internet is an unreliable source of knowledge, Yeats never said or wrote any such thing, the metaphor actually reveals the blind spot of progressive thinkers to keep burning fires need fuel. So talk about for that first please. And then I want to add a little footnote to it. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, you know, this flame of curiosity does not burn in, in a vacuum. Um, it, it needs the, the, the fuel, you need to kind of feed ourselves and feed other people knowledge in order to keep going. We need to keep, keep you know, finding out stuff. And the more you find out, the more you realize how much stuff you don't know, which makes you kind of desperate to, to learn more. That, to me, is kind of this wonderful, virtuous circle of curiosity. Um, it's not this thing that just kind of happens in the abstract. It is, it, you know, it's a, it's a function of, of learning stuff and knowing stuff and, 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 and talking about facts and information and, and knowledge, um, which just kind of, yeah, just spark this wondrous insight that we're all born with but we soon forget which is there's loads of stuff out there that that, that i don't know and and isn't that great because i can never stop learning that's 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 the, a wonderful thought yeah I, at least for me and maybe and for you i think but um the the reason i liked it a couple of reasons first of all um i'm reading i'm thinking yates didn't say that <laughs> and then yeah. you, you point i didn't because i know who said that it was plutarch ah. plutarch said oh. a um the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. And certainly he was on to something. It's true that you need fuel, but it's certainly true that, that real education isn't just passing on facts. It's, it's igniting yes. the, the question and curiosity of, of the child or the student. But it turns out Plutarch didn't say that. He, Plutarch didn't say it either. And I thought, oh, well, someone before Plutarch said it? No. Plutarch had a paragraph or two where he makes that point. Somebody at some point in history turned it into that very memorable phrase, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. Uh, of course, Plutarch didn't write in English, so he certainly didn't ever say that actual phrase no matter what. But, but he didn't say it uh, in um, Greek or Latin. Was Plutarch Roman? I think he's Roman. Not sure. Uh, Roman, yeah. yeah. Um, but he didn't say it in Latin either. He, I mean, I mean, he said something more complicated. We'll put up a link up to the actual context of the quote. But I, I just thought that was um, 
thought that was very cool. That is brilliant. Uh, to, before we go, tell us about your next book because that's pretty amazing. Oh, yes. Um, so it, it won't be out for a while. I'm, I'm really um, uh, in the m- middle of it now. It's a bit of a left turn for me in some ways. Uh, it's about the Beatles. And specifically, it is about the relationship between Lennon and McCartney. Um, and just it's a biography of their relationship. And, and I'm really fascinated by how their emotional um, dynamic um, and their love for each other uh, led to this incredible explosion of creativity. Um, and um, I, I, you know, I've always been a, a Beatles fan and just recently I started to write about them a bit more. Um, and um, the things that I've written, you know, people have enjoyed reading. So I thought, actually, why, why don't I just do a whole book about this? And the thing I'm most fascinated by about the Beatles is, is that relationship between, between John and Paul, you know, what the hell happened there? Um, so um, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm focusing on. So you have a long essay on um, the greatness of Paul McCartney, which many people would assume is a very short essay. People who don't understand the Beatles or McCartney, and yet you make a very, uh, I thought, effective. I, I confess before we started recording to you, Ian, that I'm I like the Beatles, but I'm not a fan. I'm not a, I'm not a strong fan. And and your case for Paul McCartney, I found quite fascinating. And uh, we'll, we'll put a link up to that if it's if it's public. I, mean, I can't remember if it's or it if is, subscribers yeah, yeah. only, but uh, yeah, it's free. And so um, we look forward to that book, and maybe, maybe we'll talk about it. Oh yeah, I would. I would love to. Yeah, my, but I have to write it first. Oh darn! My guest today has been yeah. Ian Leslie. <laughs> His book is called Curious. Ian, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.